Well, turn in your Bibles tonight to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. It's been a while since we have been in the Proverbs, and I'm excited about working our way continually through this great and practical book. And I believe with the outline that is provided on the screen, you'll be able to have a little bit of a review with me over the first part of Proverbs 24. If you remember, this is a section in which there are 30 sayings that Solomon has given for posterity. And that particular section, of course, begins prior to chapter 24, but it ends here and we took some time last time to go over six of those sayings and then covering six more tonight to finish the 30 sayings that end with Proverbs chapter 24, verse 22. Now, we've got a couple of sections that will continue to move us on, but tonight we'll finish this particular section of these 30 sayings. And if you will review with me, for instance, the first six that we covered last time are these. Number one, pick your friends carefully. Proverbs 24 verses one and two say, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. Secondly, build the right kind of home. Verses three and four by wisdom, a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And then a third. Use collective divine wisdom for hostile situations. Proverbs 24, verses 5 and 6. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance, you will wage war and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Number four, a fourth saying, which, of course, encapsulates the Christian life, what I call the wisest way to live. And that is this. Be humble enough to receive and to speak divine wisdom. Verse seven, wisdom is too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. And then fifthly, repudiate wicked schemers, dreamers, and screamers. Verses 8 and 9. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. And then last time we covered a sixth principle or a sixth wise way to live in the Christian life. And that is this. Remain strong in the face of adversity. Verse 10 says, if you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. In fact, I like what the ESV says, the English Standard Version of that particular verse. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So. Those were the six principles, the six wise ways to live the Christian life that took us from chapter 
24, verse 1, all the way through verse 10. And tonight we have six more. Six very, very simple principles that along with these previous six give us 12 of those 30 sayings about how to wisely live the Christian life. Let me give you number seven. Number seven in our list. Rescue those who are in serious trouble. Rescue those who are in serious trouble. Verses 11 and 12 of Proverbs 24. Solomon says, deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Now, this is very provocative. Deliver those who are in serious trouble. What does Solomon mean? Well, while this may be somewhat difficult to interpret, as has been the bane of uh, many interpreters, it appears to me that Solomon is challenging those who frankly ignore injustice, ignoring injustice. For instance, verse 11 seems to be suggesting that we are to diligently seek to rescue or to deliver or, as he says here, hold back those persons who are being unjustly persecuted, maybe even because he says here that they are being led to death or that they are they are leaning or swaying or tottering towards slaughter. It could very well mean that these persons have been wrongly persecuted, wrongly prosecuted, and that they are headed toward capital punishment. Or at the very least, it could mean that violence is being perpetrated against them. And you're seeing it. You know it to be going on. And Solomon is saying, deliver those who are being treated in that way. The idea, by the way, of staggering in verse 10 is suggestive of what I said a moment ago. Swaying or tottering or slipping. Someone is nearing an ultimate fall. They're, they're being hurt. They're either being Violently castigated or, as I said, maybe even through the law courts, you're observing maybe someone in your community, a neighbor, someone that you know, maybe even someone in, the, in your own family who is being unjustly treated. And we're called upon to rescue them from execution. The, the sense seems to be, since capital punishment was allowed and even mandated in certain cases, according to Old Testament law, that these cases were actually of those who were wrongly being convicted of crimes. Now they're being led to the slaughter. They're going to be executed. And we're called upon to do whatever we can to deliver them from this injustice of wrongful punishment. This is really a theme throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Look in your Bibles, for instance, at Psalm 82. Psalm 82. 
speaks of how we're supposed to respond like Solomon is attempting to teach his sons here in Proverbs 24. Psalm 82. Look at verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then notice this, verse 3. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And then also look in your Bibles at Isaiah chapter 58, just to give you two of them that really are a repeated theme throughout our Bibles. And as I said, especially through the Old Testament, God having a peculiar, a unique regard for the fatherless, for the widows, uh, for the poor, for the homeless, for those who are being mistreated, for those who are being wrongly prosecuted and some As Solomon says, even being led to death. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. Speaking, of course, to the Jews about what is expected of them. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke? And to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now that, of course, as I said, are just a couple of examples. But of course, there are always people who are saying, now, wait a minute. I've got obligations, don't I? I'm very busy, aren't I? And Solomon anticipates some of those very excuses. And notice what he says here. He says very, very clearly. If you say, verse 12, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? And he anticipates someone who's saying, but I didn't know they were headed for death. And yet God, nevertheless, holds accountable those even when they're claiming ignorance. Why? Because the Lord knows. He sees. He knows exactly what's in the human heart because he sees all and he knows all. And he's the all wise, all knowing God. And he sees right down to the very motives of the heart. Someone just can't claim ignorance. But I didn't know. I wasn't aware or I had forgotten. Remember Proverbs 21, 2, when we went through it, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord knows the Lord expects us to be watchful for those who are hurting and against whom injustices are being done. And according to Solomon, since the Lord is the one who keeps the soul, will he not automatically know where your heart is regarding these matters? No excuses, no ignorance. Won't the Lord be able to figure out that you don't want to be involved since he's the one who omnisciently sees in the heart? Won't he know the heart? 
So you can't claim something on the outside when the Lord himself is the one who knows the heart. Listen to Proverbs 16 two. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And we've all done it. We've all said it. We've all acted one way on the outside when on the inside, even when we know that the Lord knows the inside of our heart, he knows our motives. Nevertheless, we've all said, well, I'm too busy. I've got so much going on. There's this and that and the other thing. You remember, that's exactly what was happening in Jesus own day when someone said, "Uh, Lord, I want to follow you. But first, let me what? Let me go uh, bury my father. And Jesus had some strong denunciation for such would be followers. You remember first Samuel two, three. Listen to what it says. The Lord is a God of knowledge and with him. Actions are weighed. Or how about a more famous verse in first Samuel, first Samuel 16, seven. God sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what the heart. God knows nobody can claim ignorance. Nobody can say they're too busy. No one can say it's too difficult. The Lord knows the heart. And when the Lord knows that there are people right around us who need our help, need our assistance, we ought to reach out whenever we can to deliver those who are themselves being delivered over to death. Now, that sounds extreme. Delivered over to death. Well, sure, we would want to help them. But it doesn't necessarily always mean simply and only that these people are uh, being threatened with their life. There could be certain degrees of those who need our help. And we ought to be wanting and willing to help anybody who comes across our path. So Solomon ends verse 12 with this. And will he not render to man according to his work? In other words, we're all going to be paid in a sense. We're going to be paid back. Our work is going to be rendered unto us by God with the work that we've done. How are we doing? Solomon is trying to teach his sons that if you, in fact, know you have you have definite knowledge of someone who is in absolute distress, someone around you is hurting and they need us and you turn a blind eye to them, then you'll be given the rendering of your own deed. Proverbs 12 14, the latter part of it says this, the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. The deeds of a man's hands will return to him. And the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Very strong warning from Solomon here. Number eight. Number eight. Devour God's word as if it were sweet honey. Devour God's word as if it were sweet honey. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Proverbs 24. My son, eat honey for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, 
then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Oh, this is right in our wheelhouse, isn't it? The sweet honey of the wisdom of God's word. It will be, Solomon says, sweet to your taste. They would have known that very well. The concept of honey being used as a metaphor for the sweet intake of God's manifold wisdom. That would have been very, very familiar to them. Now look at Psalm 19. This is a very familiar idea the likening of sweet honey to the wisdom of God's word. Psalm 19, which, of course, in the latter part, exalts the word of God, exalts divine wisdom. Psalm 19:10 says this, they speaking of the judgments of the Lord, which, of course, is the fear of the Lord, which is, of course, the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord and the law of the Lord, etc., etc. All those speaking of course, in vast ways about the riches of God's word, they, the word of God, are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's a sweet thing that we've been given grace, just like Jim Clardy mentioned in that testimony, a sweet thing that we've been given grace by God to even want to read God's word. It's a grace from God. It's a grace from God. Anytime you say in your own heart, I need to read God's word. I want to read God's word. I must have God's word in my heart. It's like the sweetness of the honeycomb. It's sweet to your soul. It's like God's word being being drunk in by your lips or by your ears as you think of it, as you read it, as you articulate it in your own life. How about Psalm 119? Psalm 19, not outdone at all by Psalm 119 and vice versa. Both of them speak so glowingly of the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 103 says this. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sweeter than honey. This is God's word. Do you avail yourself of God's word as though it's like honey to the taste of your mouth? Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. This is God's word. You remember Jeremiah? He said in Jeremiah 15, 16, thy words were found and I ate them. And they became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. You remember Job? Who said, I count your word as more than my necessary food. Is that what you think? I've got a friend who told me something probably 30 years ago. And I suspect it's probably still true of him. He had a little saying in his mind and it was something like this. No Bible, no breakfast. He just had a commitment that he wanted to eat the spiritual nourishment of the word of God before he was able to feed his own soul or to feed his own body literally. No Bible, no breakfast. And and I guess we would ask the question, what can I reasonably expect if I in fact eat up God's wisdom? What does Solomon say if I find God's wisdom? Here's what he says. You will have a future 
You see what he says there in verse 14? Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. What a promise. What a promise from God's word. That sounds to me a lot like Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you what? A future and a hope. That's what Solomon says here. A future and your hope will not be cut off. Look at Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Verse 18, surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Almost the same thing, at least in terms of its conclusion. There, it's the fear of the Lord. Here, it's wisdom. And they're both, of course, the same. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when you have that wisdom, you have a future and a hope. We're not like unbelievers. We're not like non-Christians who the Bible says are groping in life without hope. We're not like those who have no hope. We have a future. We have a hope. We know the plan. We know God's destiny for us. And he's going to bless our lives. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 10 says it this way. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Is that true of you? Is that true in your experience based upon your intake of God's word? Have you been spiritually dry? Have you been spiritually lethargic, listless? It may very well be directly related to the amount of time and effort you've put in God's word. There's a cause and effect relationship between the two. You can't you can't move energetically in the Christian life without reading and knowing and meditating upon God's truth. You'll be listless. You'll be lethargic if you don't have the constant daily intake of God's word. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 1? He meditates on the word of God. How often? Day and night just means continually. You'll be a tree Planted by the streams of water, it will yield its fruit and its season. And in whatever you do, you'll prosper. You'll be like Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. You won't be a parched ground. You'll be a luxuriant tree planted by the streams of water. And I love what it says there. And you'll not faint when the heat comes. So you'll be ready. Devour God's word as if it were as sweet as honey, because guess what? It is. Number nine. Number nine. Observe the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Observe the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. This is a most interesting observation. Verses 15 and 16 of Proverbs 24. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place, for the righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. You see the contrast that Solomon's setting up here? First is the wicked man. He's actually addressed by Solomon. Isn't that interesting? 
It's the only such time that I know of in the entire book of Proverbs where the wicked man himself is actually addressed directly. And the wicked man is warned not to seek the plunder of the righteous man's house or his property. And he's being told very, very clearly, don't lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Don't destroy his resting place. And we have to, as Solomon is telling us here, when it's necessary, when it's absolutely necessary, we must reprove the wicked. True. And someone's going to immediately say, but wait a minute, doesn't the Proverbs also say that we are not to reprove a fool according to his folly? Yes. But here it sounds like there are dire circumstances. Somebody is losing their property. Again, uh, the violent are overtaking the righteous, or so it seems. And so what does a righteous man do? A righteous man responds. A righteous man says, not so. Don't do this. And this is very, very important. Look at chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. Just after this section of the 30 sayings. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. In other words, don't tell the wicked man that he's doing right things, righteous things. If you do that, people will say that you are doing exactly opposite of what you should be doing. In verse 25, but to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Not cursing. It's not a topsy-turvy world in which wicked men are doing their wickedness and we're saying that they're righteous. You do that, they'll be cursing. You do the right thing when necessary, when absolutely necessary. You rebuke the wicked and it will be for you, according to Proverbs twenty-four twenty-five, a delight. A good blessing will come upon you. You do what is right. And yet Solomon is also teaching us that even if there is a wicked man who's able successfully to plunder the property of the righteous, and even if the righteous suffer for it, he'll be able to rebound from it. Notice what he says. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Aren't you comforted by that? God's in control. He's going to protect. You say, well, seven times he didn't. Well, of course, it's not talking literally seven times, possibly could be talking about just the idea of completeness when God's plan in his providence allows you to go through all of the things that you're going to go through, maybe even having your property seized like the book of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. It, it said that people even had their property seized. Yes, it could happen. It seems as though that's a long way from where we might be in America, but certainly for other believers who are reading this same passage in countries for which there is intense persecution and their properties being seized and they themselves are the victims, some of them, of martyrdom. This would be a tremendous comfort. Tremendous comfort. And one of those aspects of comfort is this. Though you fall, righteous man... You will arise. Seven times you may be beaten down, 
But you're going to rise again. I love what Micah 7, 8 says. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. We talked very briefly this morning about God is light. God is my light. Psalm 27, 1. God is my light, the light of my salvation. The Lord knows the Lord's going to protect me. And even though I go through challenges and trials and maybe even beatings and cursings and persecutions and maybe even the seizing of my own property, even the destruction of my own house, the Bible says the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. And notice the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. What does it say about the wicked there? The wicked stumble in time of calamity. You notice there? Singular. Singular. Time of calamity, not calamities. You know what it may be signaling? Oh, yes, the righteous man, he at times is going to be challenged. He at times is going to be persecuted. He at times might very well have his property taken away from him. And it might happen several times, but God is his protector. God will take him up. God will cause him to rise. But when the wicked man who does what he does, he may in fact do it a number of times. But there'll be that time where God says that calamity, that's enough. You're gone. You're judged. You're done. And see, that's not the lot with the righteous. Although the righteous may think that. The righteous is going to be protected. The wicked man, he's going to be judged. And sometimes, maybe even on his single and only calamity, God says, that's it. You're done. You say, well, how do I know? Well, these, remember, are proverbs which are, well, proverbial. Doesn't mean, of course, that a righteous man is only going to go through one trial in his life, and then he's going to rise. Seven obviously speaks of some kind of number that is in the plural. And if there is a wicked man and he's judged even after a single calamity, then he'll be judged. And maybe not every wicked man, of course, will be judged by only one. He's just simply setting it up to say righteous men will fall seven times and rise again. The wicked, however, because of that contrast, but but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. Here's the proverb. Observe well. Be a righteous man, and even if you stumble, and even if you fall, God is able to pick you up. Don't be, right, don't be a wicked man as over against the righteous, because if you, in fact, stumble, it could actually be over... Just one calamity. Always be on the lookout if you're a wicked man. It could happen to you at any time. Number 10. Number 10. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Verses 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Now, this, I think, is probably a caution, if not a corrective to the previous proverb, right? Because you're this righteous man and you've taken your lumps and you've been hit 
and there's been persecution and maybe even your own property has been seized by someone who is wickedly and violently oppressing you. But the Bible says, even if that happens and even if it happens seven times, you're going to be able to rise because the Lord is going to be able to make you rise. And that wicked person is going to be handled. And maybe you've seen that wicked person and they have done their dastardly deeds against you. And maybe you see them being judged and you say what? Aha. Now you're going to get your comeuppance. And, you know, doesn't the sinful human heart really isn't it so prone to go there? I mean, you've been genuinely, validly persecuted by this wicked man. He's plundered your properties, seized your house. Isn't it so easy for us to say something like, well, now he's going to get it. And to be even in your heart, secretly enjoying the moment. I think that's what Solomon is warning his sons against. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And can't you hear the human response? But, but he seized my property. He, he, he took away the things that I valued. This isn't right, Lord. Now he's being judged. Now he's going to get it. And he should. Look what he did to me. Maybe Solomon is actually saying something like this. Don't, certainly in your actions, but even in your heart, exult when someone is being judged by me for what they did to you. You know what that is? That's personal vengeance. That's personal vengeance. Let God be the judge of all those things. Isn't that what Romans 12 says, verses 17 to 21? Let God be the judge of those things. Don't take matters into your own hands. Let God deal with it. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles or could be translated. Do not let your heart shout in exultation. Don't be saying in your heart, this is what they deserve. This is what they need. This is what they're going to. They're going to get, and I'm happy about it. You say, now, wait a minute. What about all of those imprecatory psalms? What about David, who seems to be exulting over his enemies? Well, I think the difference is, first of all, he's a king, and he's an army commander, and that's a big difference. He's the head of state. Secondly, he's God's arbiter of that which needs to be dealt with. And thirdly, if I thought David was doing that with regard to his own personal vengeance, I'd say he'd be wrong too. That's the difference. It's when you try to take vengeance upon yourself and you try to exact that vengeance upon others. That's what this verse is talking about. Don't try to exact your own toll upon those who have hurt you. I think the sense of the proverb is... Don't gloat over the calamity of the wicked. Don't gloat. If God is doing his retributive justice upon the wicked, beware. Because notice what Solomon says. If, if you let your heart be glad when he stumbles, if you're rejoicing when your enemy falls, notice this. If that's you, the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. And implied, I think, and turn his anger toward whom? You. At least 
It's God letting up on the retributive justice for the wicked man and that wicked man not receiving all that he deserves or that plus and God's guns of justice are now aimed at you. In fact, Bruce Waltke says about this particular verse, gloating over the disaster visited on the wicked is more wicked than the disaster they, the wicked, inflict on the righteous. You say, really? I mean, they they were the ones who did that against me or against my family or against my property. Can't I gloat just a little bit? Is that so bad? Is that so wrong? Well, the little seeds, the little seeds can well up and grow into great seeds and you can take personal vengeance and your mind and your heart and your motives and your intent can become so skewed so that you are at some point a raging inferno of vengeance. He says, nip it in the bud. Don't even rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Rather, do this. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let the Lord deal with it. You don't deal with it. Let the Lord deal with it. Or how about Job chapter 31? This is the attitude that we need to have. Verse 29, Job 31:29. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell me? No. No, I haven't done that. That's the attitude we need to have. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5:44? What should you do toward your enemies? Hate them? Gloat over their demise? What does he say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say that's too hard. Well, yes, it's it's hard. But the alternative is That the Lord is displeased with me and he turns his anger toward me and not them because I'm gloating at their demise. That's that's not a good alternative, is it? Number 11. Number 11. Do not fret because of evildoers. Verses 19 and 20. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now, this is amazing to me. This is why I think there is far more continuity in these sets of Proverbs than discontinuity, because now he's going back to the other side. And here's a righteous man who sees a wicked man seemingly flourish. And so what he does is he's envious of the wicked man. Envious of the wicked man's prosperity. And even though he does say here, do not fret, which, of course, in our day might be something like do not worry. But that's really not what he's referring to here. This Hebrew term could very well be translated anger. 
because the word itself means to burn or to glow with heat. It's do not be angry with evildoers, nor be envious of them. There's the balance. Don't be angry with them. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. But at the same time, when you watch them flourish or when you watch them receive what they want or when you watch them grab all the goodies, don't be envious of them. You know, this sounds a lot like Psalm 37. Everybody turn to Psalm 37 because this is this is an amazing parallel with this one proverb of almost the whole of Psalm 37. Listen to David. He uses the very same kind of language even in verse 1, Psalm 37, 1, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. I think Solomon and David might have been reading each other's mail. For they will gather quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Don't be don't be angry. Don't get uptight about those who prosper in their way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. In other words, have a perspective. that Even though you see them and they're seeming flourishing. Remember, it's a man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. There it is. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Just over and over and over again. Verse 28, the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Your time is coming. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. He, his steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. And then David says, verse 35, I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. See, patience, waiting, trusting all of those verbs there in Psalm 37. Don't fret. Trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, rest in the Lord, do not fret, cease from anger. All of those are speaking what Solomon is speaking of here. This is this is our hope, even when we see the the wicked prospering. And even when we have that sense in our mind, where we're saying, Lord, look, I'm serving you. And I see so-and-so over there, and they seem to be making more money than I do, and they seem to be driving better cars than I do, and they seem to be living in better houses than I live in, and they seem to have their children who are doing much better than mine. Lord, this doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem good. Be patient. Just understand. The Lord will reward you. 
Do not envy a man of violence, Proverbs 331, and do not choose any of his ways. You say, well, but what's in it for me? What, what, what am I going to get out of it? Well, first of all, you don't want to be in the category of being envious of the wicked and certainly not being a wicked person yourself. Why? Verse 20, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. The lamp speaking of the life of the person. They're going to be snuffed out. Why, why would we be envious of somebody who's going to be snuffed out? Why would we look at their life and think that's the kind of life I want to live? There's no future there. That's what verse 20 says. There will be no future. What about the righteous? For them there will be a future and a hope. The Lord will do this. Don't burn in your anger. Don't fret. Don't be envious at the prosperity of the wicked. Twelfth and finally. And this is the great place to stop. Fear the Lord and be consistent. Fear the Lord and be consistent. Verses 21 and 22. My son. This is how he's concluding this section of these 30 sayings. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Somebody says, oh, I wish he wouldn't have said that one. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change or maybe given to those who rebel. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? He brings this section to a close. And in fine fashion, he closes it with this. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. That's been a ringing theme, hasn't it? Proverbs 1.7, fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, fear the Lord. Proverbs 23.17, Live in the fear of the Lord always. And this is what he says, my son, fear the Lord and fear the king. Doesn't that sound a lot like first Peter two, seven? This is this is the idea of honoring the king. This is this is God telling us what is right. First Peter two, I think I said seven, seventeen. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I'm to fear the king? Yes, God's representative. God's ordained magistrate. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we just had a national election here in our country, didn't we? And it might not have gone exactly like some of us, many of us. Most of us had hoped God's ordination, God's plan. How? Why? Where? I don't know. But I know the win happened a couple of Tuesdays ago. God has a plan. Fear the king. Reverence those in authority. Have you ever read what? The wise old sage says in Ecclesiastes, just a book removed here from the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2 says this, I say, 
Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Isn't that what Titus says in Titus chapter 3? Very wise words for us, Titus chapter 3, especially during these times surrounding an election. Remind them, remind your people, Paul to Titus, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Because we remember who we were outside of Christ. Verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. All we have to do to try to get along, to try to lead, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, when it says praying for all kings and all those in authority, is to lead a tranquil and quiet life, is to just remember where we ourselves have come from. They're, frankly, outside of Christ, no different than we were outside of Christ. And what will be the outcome of those if I associate with the wrong kind of crowd? Notice what he says. Verse 21, do not associate with those who are given to change. Now, I take that in the context to be hanging out with those who are rebelling. Those who are the vacillators, those who don't want to fear the king, you see. Those who aren't about fearing God and the king and they're vacillating, maybe they're vacillating over public policy, maybe they're criticizing it, which has its time and its place, but doing so in a God honoring way. Or maybe this is just flat out rebellion. And Solomon is saying, listen, my son, fear the Lord. Fear the king. Don't associate with those who are given to rebellion. Why? Verse 22. For their calamity, there's that idea of calamity again, will rise when? Suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? What's both of them mean? Well, who are the two that are listed in verse 21? Fear the Lord, fear the king. If those are the ones that we're ultimately answerable to, and if we do the wrong thing, and if we associate with those who are rebellious or those who are vacillating, those who are not fearing the Lord and the king, guess what? That calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that will come from both the Lord and the king. Very, very important word. Which really signals for us the opportunity to do everything we can as citizens, not only ultimately of heaven, but of this world too, until we go to heaven to live a tranquil and quiet life, to pray for those in authority over us, change laws and do every peaceable means that we can 
for the influence of society, but ultimately not associating ourselves with those who are vacillating and those who are rebellious. Because if we do, ultimately, we could find ourselves in calamity. And we won't even understand, no, realize the ruin that comes from both the judgment of the Lord and the judgment of the king. Let me ask you as we close. With these 12 that we've thus gone over in these last two messages, are you living the wisest kind of Christian life? Do you prick? Do you pick your friends carefully? Do you build the right kind of home? Do you use collective divine wisdom for hostile situations? Are you humble enough to receive and speak divine wisdom? Do you repudiate wicked schemers, dreamers, and screamers? Do you remain strong in the face of adversity? Do you rescue those who are in serious trouble? Do you devour God's word as if it were sweet honey? Do you observe the contrast between the righteous and the wicked? Do you rejoice when your enemy falls? Do you fret or become angry because of evildoers? Do you fear the Lord and are you consistent? Boy, this this is a formidable list. And it's with this kind of list that we say two things, I suppose. One is, Lord, I need your grace. And number two, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, until you come in the person of your son, we are called upon to live out these principles and to do what we must, to do what we can, to do what we should. Because this is the wisest way to live the Christian life. Solomon's told us and told us so very well. And through your divine wisdom, he gives us the answers. And yet, Lord, we say, who is sufficient for these things? There's so many of these proverbs that are so terribly convicting. And we ought not to presume that we can live these out in our own strength. Far from it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by your Spirit and through his power, we would be able to live out these wise Christian principles for the sake of proclaiming Christ. Lord, there's no way we could even do one of these twelve if it weren't for Christ. Lord, I most assuredly don't want to preach a message in which we're just producing moralisms and legalists and those who would want to try to live these things out without knowing Christ, without the power of the Spirit, and without, Father, your blessing. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here who listens to these kinds of principles and takes their own eyes and looks at a page out of the Proverbs and says, I can't do this. I can't live this way. And Lord, allow them to join with us, all of us who are in Christ, affirming 
that very same reality that apart from Jesus, we can, in fact, do nothing. Jesus, we need you. We need your grace. We need what you provided on the cross as the only way to live a vibrant, dynamic Christian life. Jesus, I come to you now and I forsake this, the sin of my heart. I do become envious of evildoers. I I don't fear the Lord. And so many of these other principles, I just don't do them. My heart is not there. But I've been so convicted. I want to live this way and it's beyond my capacity. Oh, Lord, come into my life. Let me forsake these things and let me take up with Christ. To love him. To serve him and to accept his provision. To see his death as a covering for me. Oh, Father, I pray that there would be no one here who walks away without the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can be that very satisfaction that brings me in a right relationship with you, Father. May it be so. May we believe solely in Christ and ask Him to save us from our sins and to put us on this road of wisely living the Christian life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.